Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, January 10th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Okay, let's dive into it. Uh, it. It is a slow news day, but we got some big ones for you. Let's start off with the biggest one, which hit after we all got out of the office yesterday, and that is news that the director of Doctor Strange will no longer be directing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Ben, what is going on here? Yeah, so Scott Derrickson, who directed the first Doctor Strange film, and as of yesterday, or all the way up until yesterday, was attached and announced and all of that stuff to be directing the Doctor Strange sequel, he announced on Twitter, Marvel and I have mutually agreed to part ways on Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness due to creative differences. I am thankful for our collaboration and will re- remain on as EP. So that's executive producer. Uh, That's kind of an interesting thing in and of itself, too, because a lot of times (laughs) when people have creative differences, they just like split entirely. And I'm wondering if it has something to do with maybe like like just the development process and like how much work was put into the movie. If Marvel's sort of like throwing him a bone for the work that he did there. Um, I I assume it's contractual, too. Like he's going to get money on this and it was probably part of his deal with the first one if they made a sequel that he would remain on as producer right right like like, like james gunn i think was going to be producer on guardians 3 after he was fired right which brings us to the the question how many marvel directors have been have i guess they weren't he wasn't fired they have split they both agreed to split right right right. yeah it's it's pretty rare for marvel studios to part ways with directors like this like I think it's only happened twice so far with um, Thor The Dark World, where Patty Jenkins was originally announced and then uh, Alan Taylor ended up coming on directing that movie. And then the original Ant-Man, which Edgar Wright was like famously on board to make for years and years and then ended up stepping away sort of at the last minute. And Peyton Reed ended up coming in and and he's become, you know, the director for for all three of those franchise entries. Um, The third one is is upcoming. But um, so, yeah, this is so one of those a... turned out good. One of those turned out bad. Uh, <laughs> what does this mean for? Why do you think Scott Derrickson left this? Because there's there's a couple of theories going around the internet. There's 
obviously when this was first announced there was at uh what was this at comic-con this year i think, I think so, or yeah. last mm-hmm. year um i think derrickson or feige was, was talking about how this was going to be kind of a horror film of sorts yeah they said that it was basically going to be like the first scary movie in the mcu and there have been a couple stories about that where um i think kevin feige himself has been talking about how dr strange 2 is supposed to have you know horror elements but not like full-on horror movie it, it, it's never been like um you know how new mutants was originally sort of pitched as like a horror movie in the X-Men world. It's never been as um, explicit as that. Uh, I think Feige has, has called out like, um, you know, the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark and like things like, um, you know, some of the Amblin type yeah. of productions, like that level of uh, scary stuff within a larger adventure story. So yeah, I guess one of those theories you're talking about is that maybe Scott Derrickson, who's more of a horror guy himself, he's directed, you know, the exorcism of Emily Rose and Sinister and movies like that. Um, maybe he wanted to push the horror a little bit more than Marvel was interested in pushing it. And that could be where those creative differences lie. Um, do you have another theory, Peter? Cause I have one. Well, well, the other thing is that that's interesting about that theory is Feige's done some interviews recently where like, like you mentioned, he's, he's kind of walked back the, the horror angle of that, even though mm-hmm. they led with that at, at uh, Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. So that's what, why people are leading to that. But yeah, the other theory is that this film is going to tie into the Disney Plus uh, MCU universe. Uh, it was was that what you were going to mention? It was, yeah, because like this sequel is really being positioned more than any of the other um, announced movies of the MCU as like a very important thing to the future of what Marvel is doing. Because uh, Feige has talked about it, it being basically like a creative linchpin. He said the multiverse is the next step in the evolution of the MCU, and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is going to crack it open in ways that will have repercussions. Uh, and and he's talking about repercussions for like the movies after it, as well as the Disney plus series that you mentioned. So WandaVision, the um, Elizabeth Olsen, Paul Bettany, uh, uh, Disney plus show and Loki, the one with Tom Hiddleston, where he's reprising his villain role are both going to tie into the movie. Doctor Strange two in some way. So maybe it's a case of like uh, Derrickson just being um, overwhelmed with the amount of uh, requirements in terms of like this, the grand designs of the story. I, I don't want to like put that on him. That's completely speculation. He could be totally fine with that. I'm just sort of like tr- looking at it from the outside in with our limited perspective here, just thinking about potential obstacles that he could, or that, that Marvel could um, encounter here. That could be something like that. But um, I guess we'll have to wait and see if, if any more uh, official information ever comes out about why they ended up parting ways in this capacity. Yeah. And at Comic-Con, I, you know, I don't have the official quote in front of me, but I, I remember Feige kind of made it seem like if you don't watch these shows, then some of the stuff in this movie is not going to, you know, you'll be rewarded. For right. some of the stuff, so it's not going to be just like a minor part. So it's, it really seems like it's a big part of this movie, and that could be, yeah, I could definitely see Scott Derrickson getting into some <laughs> creative arguments over, you know, how much of this movie should be this movie, and how much of this movie needs to be, you know, connected to the other things. Right, and then one more thing I wanted to mention really quickly, and I, I have no idea if this has anything to do with uh, why they ended up parting ways like this, but last October. A rising screenwriter named Jade Bartlett was hired to uh, as the writer of Doctor Strange 2. And I know that Scott Derrickson co-wrote the first Doctor Strange with uh, John Spates and C. Robert Cargill. And it was unclear if Derrickson himself was going to be co-writing the script for Doctor Strange 2. So maybe, you know, that level of authorship 
you know, played a factor in this yeah. too. Like maybe if he he didn't get the screenwriting credit that he wanted, or um, or the opportunities to write uh, that he may have wanted from the beginning, or something like that. I don't know. All of that again, just pure speculation oh, on yeah. my part. And, and see, Robert Cargill, who we've you know we're friends with online. He's uh, you know used to be part of this world. And now he's you know writing movies and writing books. Uh, you know he is you know his writer pal. Like, it, it seems strange to not have him involved in this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, I guess the question, Peter, is who do you want to see step in <laughs> to direct Doctor Strange 2? Oh, who do I want to see? That, that's tough. Uh, do you have any picks, Ben? Well, I'm I'm keeping an eye on our Slack channel right now. And Jacob uh, just said somebody on Twitter just suggested Sam Raimi for Doctor Strange 2. And oh, boy, anything else will feel like a letdown to me now. Um, oh, wow. I, I really like that uh, idea, especially since Raimi has, uh, you know, he's worked with Feige before and the uh, on the Spider-Man movies back in the day. And he has superhero experience. So um, I wonder if that would be something that's interesting to him, because he definitely like I can easily see a vision of a Sam Raimi Doctor Strange movie. I feel like he would have a ball just jumping into the the wild wacky sort of horror-ish elements of that world yeah uh sam Raimi would be a great choice that that is that is probably the best choice i can think of you know uh our our friend uh dan trachtenberg uh i i've been previewed to some of the stuff he's working on like you know crime of the century which he's been trying to get off the ground and it was over at universal i'm not sure if it's still over at universal but there's some very like mind-bendy interesting stuff there and i think that's I don't know. I don't want to speak for him, but I, I I think that's more of like the stuff he wants to do with, and he's been kind of pigeonholed as like this horror director. Um, I, I think he could be an interesting take for a Doctor Strange sequel, but I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of like what other interesting names that would want to do it. Do you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. like you know, I would love to see like I don't know. Like, yeah, there's just so many names that are coming to mind. I'm like, they would not be interesting <laughs> yeah yeah it's so. it's a very like specific subset of a type of filmmaker that marvel likes to look for i think trackenberg actually fits that model really well like 10 cloverfield lane was like a, a successful movie not a huge one but good enough and and um you know in terms of like showing a, a lot of potential for a filmmaker and as you mentioned if he's being sort of pigeonholed in the horror thing then maybe having a little you know dipping a toe into the quote-unquote Amblin horror of Doctor Strange yeah. 2. Um, and then maybe that's a way for him to sort of like slowly step out of that pigeonhole a little bit. It'll be interesting to see who we hear because, you know, now that this has happened, we're going to hear from the trades like who's meeting for this and all that kind of stuff. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be following this as we go forward. Uh, but let's talk about some other stuff. Let's talk about this uh, story that I think made you mad <laughs> yesterday. Uh, <laughs> this is Warner Brothers is going to be using artificial intelligence to help decide which movies get greenlit yeah so warner brothers has signed a contract with a company called synalytic to use its project management system and the quote here is that it is going to leverage the system's comprehensive data and predictive analysis to guide decision making at the green light stage so i mean i wasn't as pissed off about this as brad was he was very very angry i think digging into the real details of this thing um 
this platform that they're working with, this this company, Synalytic, is offering this platform that is capable of assessing the value of a star in any territory and how much a film is expected to make in theaters and on other ancillary streams. It is going to reduce the amount of time executives spend on low-value, repetitive tasks and instead give them better dollar-figure parameters for packaging, marketing, and distribution decisions like release dates. So, I mean... Oh, you know, so this it, is just valuing actors. It, it's, it definitely has a lot to do with the value of actors and and yes in the in different countries and stuff like that figuring out if people if if it's going to be worth um you know like a return on investment kind of thing it's it's all number crunching it's all analytics but the thing is analytics have been a part of hollywood studios for a long long time even though it hasn't been as publicized as this. The thing about artificial intelligence is, I mean, it's very easy for people to see headlines like this and be like, oh, great. They're just like ceding control to Skynet. And now we're just going to get, you know, 50 Kevin James movies in a year because they decide that Kevin James yeah. is like the most bankable person in China or whatever. And, you know, and, and, and by the way, example. that's what Netflix has done, right? Like Netflix uses their own data, supposedly. Like at least this is what the they have told us right they use their own data to formulate what the users will want in terms of not only actors but also like what kind of genres what kind of stories what kind of settings what kind of you know countries you know everything um so even more a a lot deeper than this right and and i mean you can make the argument that some of that uh approach has worked better than others Um, But I mean, I can understand why Warner Brothers would want to do something like this, because Disney, as has been well reported, absolutely dominated the competition at the box office in 2019. They made eleven point two billion dollars total worldwide, like the the first studio to ever cross ten billion dollars in a single year. And, you know, I feel like any competing studio is going to try to do whatever they can to get a leg up and be able to compete in a serious way with Disney right now. And the thing that I want to like make absolutely clear is that it's not artificial intelligence just making these decisions and there's no human element to it at all. The CEO of Synalytic said what is good at uh, what it is good at is crunching numbers and breaking down huge data sets and showing patterns that would not be visible to humans. But for creative decision making, you still need experience and gut instinct. So um, Toby Emmerich, who's the the head of the Warner Brothers film uh, department or whatever, has been in this business for a long, long time. He's not just going to snap his fingers and <laughs> let a computer make all of the decisions because there are a lot of high level people who get paid millions of dollars a year to uh, to make those decisions and. I think this is basically just going to help them figure out better release dates, maybe occasionally put, uh, you know, help with narrowing down casting pools and stuff like that. Um, Of course, you do run the risk of losing out on some outside of the box thinking and and more creative decision making. But I, I think with those with the human element still intact here. Hopefully that stuff will will not be as, um, you know, doom and gloom as these headlines sort of make this story out to be. I just wish we had an example of like what this technology could do because I feel like today in Hollywood, the stars are less valuable, right? Like we have Robert Downey Jr. who comes off Avengers Endgame and now he's doing Doolittle and is that going to do well? I don't, I don't know. We don't know. So that's a bad example. But let's say, um, okay, uh, Zoe Saldana, she was Mm -hmm. in 
Avatar, one of the biggest films of all time. She was in Avengers Endgame, one of the biggest films of all time. Now, like, is it going to suggest her for, like, every movie? (laughs) Right, yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. Like, how exactly does the algorithm work? Um, Yeah, but it's interesting that you mentioned Downey because uh, Zach Stentz, who was a screenwriter of uh, X-Men First Class and the first Thor movie, said that basically the the entire MCU is built on Jon Favreau convincing a bunch of executives that a middle-aged actor not long out of rehab and prison who had described himself as box office poison uh, would be the perfect Iron Man. And these analytics that purport to tell you which actor is worth how much in these territories are useless compared to the casting intuitions that end up creating magic on screen. So he he was sort of like speaking out yeah. against the idea of using this artificial intelligence. And I, I fully agree with that. Like there there is a magic that happens when uh, people have, you know, are able to follow their gut and and and. Uh, create that human connection um so I, I don't think anybody is suggesting that this whole thing is just going to be completely ai driven oh, yeah. i think it's just going to be uh trying to help the process out and give warner brothers a leg up in whatever way they can see i think i would personally be more interested in this would i think it's going to draw some criticism of me saying this but i think i'd be more in- interested if this ai was actually like deciding what projects like from you know the actual story material like what, what like you know this story is a coming of age drama and it's set in this place and has you know this kind of tone to it what like if ai could like assess that and be like oh these kind of movies do well in you know china and these mm-hmm. do you know what I mean like I, I know that's bad because then that <laughs> we let the the algorithm dictate you know the 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 stories that right. we get but that to me would be more interesting than than the stars because it just seems to me that the stars are less valuable these days. Yeah. I think that it's easier for the stars because you can just plug in, like you were saying comps for previous movies that they've been in that are kind of associated with the type of movie that they might be in coming up. But like, for stories and stuff like that, it there are so many, um, there's so much uh, nuance to yeah. what type of story it is. I feel like that stuff would be lost in an algorithm somewhere, those finer details, you know. For sure. Okay, uh, our last story for today, uh, Parasite, one of our favorite films of the year. We actually have Slash Films Top 15 Movies of 2019 was published today. You can read that on the site. I will not spoil it, but Parasite is on there. It's up high. Uh, and... It is now going to be getting a remake in the form of a limited series coming to HBO. Ben, why? Uh, well, I don't know. I, that's what I'm having trouble with. I'm I'm so disappointed that this is happening because I feel like Parasite is like the movie of 2019. I think it is so, so, um, so much in Bong Joon-ho's wheelhouse and it's like a master at the peak of his powers. Uh, the good news is that Bong Joon-ho is involved with this limited series. Uh, Adam McKay, who is involved with HBO's Succession, he's directed Anchorman and, and a bunch of other stuff, The Big Short, uh, is also involved with this. And we don't really know what this is actually going to be. So The Hollywood Reporter released this news yesterday, but they said it is unclear if the limited series will be some sort of follow-up to the movie or an English English language remake. So there's a massive, massive difference between those two things because the ending of Parasite, I know you don't love it, Peter, but it's it's this heartbreaking yeah. gut punch that is really let's not like spoil it for people who haven't seen it. Yeah, of course. But it, it is like um, it it's so powerful, and and to continue that story after that ending seems to me like it would really rob the movie of a lot of its power. 
I'm not sure, you know, so I guess with that in mind, it makes more sense for this to be an English language remake. Um, the thing about this is I, I know, you know, when this news came out, our Slack channel blew up and everybody was very um, disappointed and, and sort of a borderline angry about this because uh, Parasite is so great and it's just it's so um, unfortunate to see. Uh, to see it get sort of sanded down because you know it's not going to be the exact same thing. You know the artistry, yeah. even though Bong Joon-ho is still there, is not going to be the same thing on an American uh, premium cable channel network or whatever. So, but But here's the problem, Ben. Yeah. Americans will not go to the theater to watch a movie that has text on the screen. And this movie did exceptionally well. Like you said this in the in, in our Slack channel yesterday when we were discussing this. Like this was a breakout hit for a foreign film and that's 24 million dollars. Like that that would not be considered a success from any Hollywood studio. Right, right, yeah. Like, 24 domestically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, uh, yeah, it, it did much better. It did like over 100 worldwide mm-hmm. or something. So I'm not trying to make it like it isn't a hit. It is it's it's a hit. Um but that's the problem. So what what do you do? Like, I mean, there's a story that people connected with and Hollywood executives are like, oh, let's replicate that. Let's replicate that in a way that, you know, Americans will watch where it's, you know, uh, Americans. I'm going to be very cynical here. I'm, I'm, I'm coming from a place of cynicism here and I don't feel like this is the way it should be. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm being very clear here. But Americans want to watch Americans on screen speaking English. And that's sad. It's sad. It's sad. But like, so if you replicate Parasite with Americans, uh, will will it recapture that magic? And I'm guessing the answer from you is going to be no. And, I, I, you know, we've seen this time and time again. Uh, You know, there's been many movies that have been foreign films that have been replicated uh, into American remakes. And generally they do not connect generally they are not as good uh sometimes we get something like the departed because you have martin scorsese um which was based on what was it a hong kong uh yeah infernal affairs infernal affairs but that's the rarity um right but uh let's give benefit to the doubt here this is hbo hbo has a good track record Right. And Bong himself is involved. So that, you know, that that gives me a little bit of hope here. I it just it's it's not a bad business move. Um, I just am a little saddened by it because like uh, Bong Joon-ho, he won a Golden Globe and he said at the in his speech, once you overcome the one inch tall barrier of subtitles, you'll be introduced to so many more amazing films. And that's so true. It's just that one inch barrier, Peter, for <laughs> most American audiences is really, really tough to <laughs> to overcome. And it's it's just such a shame that that's the case. But um, what do you think about Adam McKay as as somebody who's, um, I guess, being associated with this? this property now um i i know our slack channel was really upset about Adam McKay, but i like some of his more political uh stuff and i know it is a bit on the nose at times and it's a bit uh obvious but i i think honestly parasite at times is a bit on the nose <laughs> with right. its, well, I mean, messaging. it's not like it's not like bong joon ho is uh is always subtle like <laughs> snowpiercer is very very obvious when it, it with its metaphors you know yeah what do you think of him for this i mean i i'm kind of mixed on him i i like his comedy stuff um for the most part his i I really enjoyed the big short i have not seen vice yet um he does have more of like a sledgehammer approach and i feel like that could sand away some of the details that make parasite so artful but um 
at the same time, he he makes sense to me as somebody who is a big part of the HBO family, um, could facilitate, you know, Bong's vision. He, he saw the movie and said that it's immediately one of the greatest cinematic statements on the cult of capitalism ever made. So it's clear that he is a big fan of the film and a fan of Bong Joon-ho. So I, I feel like maybe it's one of those cases where and this is me just being hopeful, where he's going to attach his name to it and sort of uh, help shepherd it through the process and and let Bong Joon-ho sort of do his thing with it. Um, but McKay, you know, he's always been interested in explorations of wealth and class and greed and power and, and the stuff that uh, Parasite is very much about, like capitalism yeah. with a capital C, basically. So, um, Especially I, I think, where Amer- America is today with our president yeah. and th- what, what's going on. I feel like Parasite, a, a Parasite limited series could connect with, you know, really well with what's going on. Yeah, definitely. The themes of that movie work really well for the economy and, and economic situation of South Korea right now, but they also work really well in America. I think that's part of the reason that Parasite has become such a big hit because American audiences, the ones who who can get over the obstacle of the subtitles, can see and relate to, you know, the the class inequalities and and the messaging of that movie in a, in a really big way. So, um, I don't know. I, I'm I guess I'm cautiously optimistic about this. I don't hate it as much as a lot of other people seem to hate this news, but um, I, I really just hope that we we get more Bong Joon Ho than Adam McKay <laughs> in the final product. You know. And you mentioned McKay and his sledgehammer, and I'll be more cynical again here, but maybe America needs that sledgehammer sometimes. And yeah. uh, but that said. You know, this is on HBO. This is the same network that we got, you know, Watchmen. And we're getting, you know, uh, Westworld. Like, very, like, things that are very complex. So mm-hmm. it might be interesting if, I, I guess Adam McKay is probably not the right person for this, but maybe if we could delve into the idea of Parasite in a more complex, subtle way. But I guess, yeah, I guess we've we've already said that McKay is probably not the person to do that. So, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. That does it for the news today. But, uh, Ben, on the site today, we have also, in addition to the top 15 movies of 2019 from the Collective Slash Home staff, we have published your top 10 movies of 2019. Yes. So I thought since we had some time here, uh, if you could tell us about some of your favorites, not giving us any order so that people can go to the site and check it out and, and uh, find out where they place. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's going to come as no surprise that Portrait of a Lady on Fire is on there. I've talked a lot about that movie and I'll really just cut it short here and not mention anything else. But you can go read my entry on the list. Uh, Booksmart made my list, um, a movie that I'm not sure I, I still have yet to read. Uh, every entry of uh, all of our staff writers, um, their top 10. So I, I need to do a, a comparison and see sort of where my stuff uh, aligns or how it aligns with everybody else's. But um, Midsommar is on there as well. Uh, Ford versus Ferrari is on there. I'm not going to say anymore, but uh, go and, and check that out. Uh, I worked pretty hard on putting together. A, a, I mean, it's tough, Peter. I thought uh, 2019 started out a little rough, but ended up you know, delivering a lot of really, really great movies. So um, I'm excited about the, how my list turned out. And and again, yeah, we have the the entire site's collective top 15 uh, that just went up this morning as well. So check that out too. Yeah, and we're now in January where like it's like a graveyard of bad movies coming out. So if you're looking to find some stuff in the theater uh, that is great, you know, go to these lists, check them out. We'll put them in the show notes. 
Uh, you can find more of all the stories we've mentioned on today's podcast listed in the show notes as well. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you on Monday.